So uh, I spent the first, uh, the first 12 years of being a pastor, I was in Wisconsin and, um, you know, was basically trying to survive the winters, more or less. And a lot of my friends have actually been posting on social media pictures of all the snow that they have right now. And I am so grateful for living where we live now. And I love that we're going into spring. I think it's finally here. That's my opinion. Anybody else agree? Yeah. Like if it snows again... I won't be able to handle it. <laughs> I'll be honest. I, I need this spring. I need it. I need it, Jesus. But uh, we, we lived there for 12, well, 12 years. We were passing this church. And I think it was about 10 years ago, um, I had a friend who uh, felt like the Lord was calling him to go into missions. And so he was, you know, just a carpenter. And, and uh, you know, he was like, I feel like the Lord's calling me to move to Nicaragua. And I was like, yes. And he had this, he had this snowmobile. He's like, I'm going to sell it. And I was like, I feel like Jesus has called me to buy that from you. And so he sold it to me for like super, super cheap. And it was a Kawasaki 2-Up. It was just the, it was the coolest thing. It was so long. It had so much room on it. I could fit like all five of my kids on it. And we would, you know, drive all around. And, and uh, behind our house was the Catholic school. And the Catholic school had this huge, huge field. And we would just, we'd make jumps and like, that's all I would do, and I was just, like, the happiest I've ever been. It had warm, it had the seat warmers and the, and the handlebar warmers, and it was, like, the coolest thing ever. And one of the things that a lot of people did where we lived is they would, they would go on these long snowmobile trail rides, and so you could actually almost drive across the state. You could go from, from the east to the west, the west to the east, um, just on these trails, and they would go to town, to town, to town. They would stop at restaurants and taverns and pubs, and you could you could kind of design it. And this thing was was so fast too. I mean, the thing that I loved about it is that it like went from zero to Mach two like in five seconds. And I was like, oh man. And I remember when I bought it, I, I would see when we first moved to this small town, I would see this guy always riding his snowmobile, and he'd be doing all the jumps, and just really annoying to me, you know. Like any of you ever, you know, camping and you see the guys or the gals on four-wheelers and they're doing all the tricks and you're really frustrated and annoyed by it because it's not you? That was me. I was always like seeing this guy. I was like, man, that's just wrong and uh, he should be more safe. And then I got one and I like turned into a frat boy like in seven seconds. I was just like, yeah, going all over. And I, I started doing these, uh, these trips with some friends that had snowmobiles and we would kind of be like, okay, we're going to go out and we would go on these trail rides and and the whole design was you'd, you'd ride for a few hours and you end up at some tavern or restaurant. And there was this restaurant in our community that I, I loved. It was called Silver Dollar. And like a lot of people went there and it was, really, it was a really a typical Midwestern Northern tavern um, in that it you know, obviously had a lot of, lot of beer there, and, but it was a very family-friendly environment. So you'd walk in and there'd be a bar and then there'd be babies everywhere. It was like super like, well, this is totally Wisconsin. Uh, they had cheese curds there. Cheese curds are amazing. Anybody ever had cheese curds, deep fried cheese curds? Some of you have. Mind-blowing. Like, it changed my life. That was, I mean, when I think about Wisconsin, there's like three things that I miss, and that's one of them, is those cheese curds. And then this place, Silver Dollar, had the absolute best root beer on tap that I'd ever had. And I would just be like, just crushing them. Just crushing those root beers. Crushing them. <laughs> and... It was really fun, though, and we, so we would do these trips where we'd go out, we'd be driving all around in our snowmobile, and then we'd end up at Silver Dollar, and we'd all be hanging out, and, and one of my friends, John, 
uh, he, he had talked to me one time. He's like, hey, I know uh, some guys who have this like snowmobile club. And he's like, what do you think about joining the snowmobile club? And I was like, you know, like, I don't know. That sounds kind of weird. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's, let's do it. And so we started riding with a couple people. And, um, and I met this guy named Michael in the group. And Michael, uh, he had grown up Catholic. And over time, um, I think by his, like his teen years or his you know, early 20s, he had become an, an atheist. And an atheist is someone, so an agnostic is what many people are. And an agnostic is someone who says, I don't know if there's a God. It's, it's like they're agnostic. They don't really have the, the knowledge to be able to determine whether or not there's a God. And an atheist is someone who's on, even further along the line, they say there is no God. They are convinced without a shadow of a doubt there is no God. And so he was an atheist. And so super kind of militant and very anti-Christian too. I remember like at this time, I was, um, I think I was trying to figure out a way, um, I was trying to figure out a way to form relationships in this really small town of 1,100 people. And I was looking for a way to form friendships and a way to talk about my faith in Jesus in a non-threatening, non-weird, non-manipulative way. And so that's kind of what I was, I was hoping to do. And so I formed these relationships and he found out I was a pastor and then immediately would like never talk to me ever. <laughs> it was like, I tried so hard too. There were times where I was like, I remember I'd be riding my snowmobile over to hang out with them. And I'd be like, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. When we get there, I'm going to bring this up and I'm going to talk about this. And then that's going to be my way to get into talking about Jesus. And it was like every time I'd get there and I'd start my process, he would do some type of like atheist ninjutsu like move on me. And I'm like, I didn't get to talk about any of the things I wanted to. And I was like, man, this guy's like a, he's like a Jedi Knight of atheism. And, uh, and so I was like, all right. And so finally, one night we, we were at Silver Dollar. I'd ordered a bunch of cheese curds, dip them in ranch, drinking root beer to my heart's delight. And, uh, and we started, you know, kind of talking. And I, I've noticed something about atheists. I've had a lot of conversations with atheists and agnostics over the years. I love those conversations. I mean, I really, I really do. I look forward to having conversations about faith and, and sharing why I believe in Jesus and who I believe Jesus is and things like that. And so something I've noticed about atheists in particular is that after they've had a couple beers and a couple whiskeys, they become very willing to communicate. I don't know if any of you have ever found that. And so we're like talking and all of a sudden he's asking me questions and I'm like, oh man, this is it. This is amazing. And, and as the night progressed, it, it kind of ended in this one moment where he basically said, there's two things, two questions that I have that really are the biggest reasons why I haven't yet moved in the direction of following Jesus. And I'm like, man, let me have it. He said, number one is this. How can I know that Jesus was raised from the dead for real? How can I know that Jesus was raised from the dead for real? That was question number one. Question number two was this, and I found this very interesting. How do I know that God loves me? How do I know that God loves me? And I think those are really important questions. I think they're really, really important questions. In fact, I feel like those are questions that we, as, as a community, I mean, we return to those questions all the time. Like, how do we know that we can trust the testimony of Scripture? Like, how do we know that this book that we study every single week is true? How do we know that we should live our lives under the, under the authority of the Bible and, and in conformity to the teachings of Scripture? And, and, and you know what? I feel like everybody at some point in time struggles with knowing whether or not God loves them. I think everybody in this room at some point in time feels that way or questions that or, or needs to know. And so it's like super, super common 
questions. And so here's what I want to do this morning is we're not going to spend all of our time looking at all the different uh, scientific evidences that support the historicity and the accuracy of the New Testament and the testimony regarding the, revel- the resurrection. We could do that. I mean, I could spend hours giving example after example after example as to why I believe that the best and most compelling explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus was raised from the dead. We could do that, but we're not going to do that today. What I want to do is talk about the application aspect of living under the reality of the resurrection. Like, for you and I, why should we care? Why should we care so much about the resurrection? And so what I want to do first is I want to look at the Gospel of John. We've been in the Gospel of John for the last six or seven weeks. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. So reading from John chapter 20, starting in verse 1, we read these words. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciples started out from the tomb, for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But I go find my, bro- but go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to your God and my God, to, your, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. So, Father, for a few moments, we pray that your spirit would help every one of us in this room to see how the resurrection of Jesus, the true meaning of Easter, shapes our lives and should impact us. We pray for everybody in this room to come to know you more. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was raised in the church, and in in many ways, um, as many of you know, I was raised in the church from a very young age. My mom became a Christian when I was like one or two, and from that moment on, my mom and dad basically made me go to church. I was in church a lot. I remember when I was like eight or nine years old, we were at church 
early at 8 o'clock for Sunday school, then we'd have 10 o'clock service, we'd have Sunday evening prayer meeting, and then we'd have like a Tuesday meeting of some sort in time, Wednesday night small group, there was often like a midday Friday prayer gathering, and then on special weekends, we'd be at church on Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. And it was so awesome. I loved it. Not at all bitter about those years that I lost. But uh, that was part of my story was I just was, was at church all the time. And so because of that, I had these struggles growing up where it's like, man, I, I, my parents, they're super into this. I'm not so sure. But along the way, I had several encounters with God. I mean, there were like these moments where though I might not have fully invested my life in it, I might not have said, yes, I'm all in. I definitely was aware of God's love for me. And I was definitely aware of, of Jesus as a person. But I do remember... One thing about my childhood that was like beat into me, it was ingrained in my mind, it was like just always at the forefront, and it was this, Easter is not about bunnies or candy, it's about Jesus. And like, I used to be like, I'd feel kind of guilty when I was like, but the candy's good, right? And how many of you like the chocolate Easter bunnies? I love them because I just love eating the ears first. It's like, I don't even care about the rest of it, right? But I used to, like, I felt guilty, though, um, not, I guess, seeing more to the, to the story, so to speak. And so when I was about 16 years old, I remember I started, I started really thinking about this whole faith thing. Because I was like, man, my mom and dad are, like, super into this, and they're at church all the time. And, like, I remember the first time, and one, one particular thing just popped to my mind. I remember my dad, I was probably, like, 11 or 12 years old, and I saw my dad at church worshiping for the first time. Like I saw him like lifting his hands and singing and I was like, whoa, that's weird. Something has happened to my dad. And at the time I was kind of like embarrassed by it a little bit, but in truth it made more of an impact on me than all these other things because I saw my dad who was this like, my dad played division one basketball. He was like, you know, kind of, he was outdoors and you know, really smart. I mean, just not the kind of person that I would assume would do that. And I remember when he really surrendered to Jesus, him engaging in worship made such an impact in my life. And so I was like 16 years old, and I started saying like, hey, I need to kind of figure out this faith thing for me because I'm eventually going to be moving out of my parents' house, and I won't, you know, be living here forever. And, you know, part of that, I jokingly said the 9 o'clock service because I'm Gen X. And Gen X, our generation, knew that when you turned 18, right? Any Gen Xers in the room? Nope, just millennials? All right. (laughs) Like, I knew that that was going to happen. So I knew that I had to start to figure out the faith thing for myself a bit. So I started really thinking about it. I'm like, you know, is this this Jesus? Is this Jesus stuff for me? Or is it just my parents' thing? And so I had this, like, struggle. I wrestled with that question from, like, 16 until, like, maybe 21, 22 years old. And even at that time, I'm studying theology in my undergrad. I'm reading the Bible all the time. And, and I'm trying to come to terms with whether or not this resurrection event had actually happened. Or was it just a fairy tale? Was it just something that a bunch of people made up thousands of years ago, and now all of us gathered together once a year to think about that event? But what I found was that it was, actually, it was actually true. I found out that there was a lot more evidence to support it than I even was aware of. Um, and one of the scriptures that, that really like, compelled me and, and 
and positioned me to really ask that question, whether or not the resurrection is true, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, he's not been resurrected, he says, then your faith is useless. You hear that? If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, our faith is useless. Other translations say it's worthless or it's a waste of time. And then he says, you are still guilty of your sins. So like Paul's own words in 1 Corinthians 15 were like, hey, this needs to be taken seriously because if it is true that Jesus has been powerfully raised from the dead, then everything has changed. Everything has changed. And so I deep dived into it and I studied and read and I came to the conclusion that, yeah, absolutely, it was, it was a real event that happened. And, and so what I want to do just for a couple more minutes here is I want to talk about the reality of this concept of new life. Because one thing that I, I've been seeing the last few weeks, I've been you know, reading and preparing for today and just thinking about the resurrection. And there's this phrase that keeps coming up all over the New Testament. Like when you just do a search for all the texts in the New Testament, in the Gospels and the Epistles and Revelation, all these different texts, if you search them all and you want to know what the Bible teaches about the resurrection of Jesus, there's a corresponding phrase that happens over and over again, and it's the phrase, new life. New life is a prominent feature to numerous texts where, where what Paul or Peter or the Gospels teach us is that Jesus died for our sins, and on the third day was resurrected, and because of his death and his resurrection, you and I, as human beings, have been given new life. It is, it is given to us as a gift by God's grace through our faith. And so what I see is over and over again, new life is, is for every follower of Jesus. And so what I want us to do is just think a little bit about how this applies. Like, like how does new life apply to us right now? Because what I assume is that some of you in this room are like super pumped and you're going to go home and you're going to read your Bible all day. You're going to watch Chosen seasons one through five. I don't even know those five. Whatever, you're going to be all about it. You know, on Friday, you watched The Passion of the Christ, and you're like super into it. And then others of you are like, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what to think about this. And maybe some of you are somewhere in between, or maybe you're here, and you're just like I was when I was a kid, and your mom dragged you here, your dad dragged you here, and you're like, I don't know, whatever. Let me tell you what new life can do for you, though. Let me tell you what, what living in the reality of the resurrection can actually bring to your life. And the first one is this hope. New life, the new life that Jesus gives us through his death and his resurrection, which we receive by our faith. When we say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that he was raised from the dead and I want to follow him. When you do that, you get hope. You get hope. I mean, that's something that Jesus said earlier in John chapter 11 when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he goes on to say that, like, I, he says, I, Jesus, can give you life. Even though you die, you won't stay dead. You'll experience life. And so the hope that we have, I mean, it's true when we talk about having faith in Jesus and living in the reality of Christ's death and resurrection, I want all of us to know that, yeah, I mean, part of us is like we're looking forward to future hope, right? Like, I mean, I've done a lot of polling over the years, and I'm convinced that no one says that they want to go to hell right? I mean, I've done it. Like, how many of you want to go to hell right now? Raise your hand right now so we can know. You're weird. No, like everybody in the room is like, I would like to go anywhere but hell, right? Like, heaven sounds good to me. 
And we might have all these different various conceptions of what heaven is, but no one wants to, wants to like, experience God's judgment or wrath or anger or whatever you want to call hell or, or the future. We all hope that there's, there's, there's something after life that includes being in God's grace and being in his presence and being able to experience his love. And I believe that that happens through our relationship with Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. But here's what's really cool. See, I think a lot of times, like, what we haven't done a very good job in the church is that we make faith seem like it's only a future thing. Like, if you become a follower of Jesus now, someday you'll get to experience that level of salvation. But all of the New Testament authors actually use the present tense to apply salvation now. So, for example, how many of you know John 3.16? If you watch football, you know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? And when we see that, we're like, oh, someday I'm going to get some eternal life. In the original language, it's present tense, meaning we experience eternal life right now. So the hope that we have in the future resurrection of our bodies, it actually impacts us now. Like, why do we live our lives grounded and patiently waiting and persevering through some of the most challenging things that we can go through, we do that because we have future hope. And it's given to us through new life, which is found in the resurrection of Jesus. So that's the first thing, new life, new life. The second, the second aspect, I think, is new life power. And new life power, to me, is probably one of the most important and powerful truths of the Easter story. Because Paul says this in Romans 8. He says that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. All He's saying you, use guys and gals, okay? It's plural. He says in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. So here's the crux of the matter is that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead powerfully empties that tomb of death because death does not have its grip on Jesus. That same spirit now lives in every single follower of Jesus. I mean, it's like, whoa, it's marvelous. I don't even know if we fully comprehend it, because if it is, we should do like backflips right now, right? Like when I get pumped, like when there's certain music on, if I hear a real banging hip-hop beat, I want to throw furniture. Like, oh, let's throw furniture. But like this truth of having the same spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead, lives inside of us, is like, right? I mean, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. That same power that raised Christ lives inside of us. And the third thing that we see is new life love. Love is connected to this new life thing. And I got to tell you, I was actually, I was really wrestling with this because one thing that I see really clearly when it comes to love in the New Testament is this. This is the common thread, is that, is that Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to die for you. Or we see things like, God displays his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So like the concept of the love of God is rooted in the death of Jesus all over the place. And there's not very many texts that root the love of God with the resurrection. 
Except for, we see right here, Paul doing this, and we have to do a bit of theology here, meaning we have to think a bit about the implications of Paul's words here. He says this, he says, either way, Christ's love compels us. It controls us. He says, since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. You see that old life language? He says, he died for everyone so that those who receive his, say it again, new life, will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. And so what we have right here is this idea of God's love being connected to new life. And new life was first demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection, which we celebrate every single Sunday, hopefully if you're a follower of Jesus, it's in the forefront and the back of your mind all the time. Because guess what? Next week, Jesus is still alive right? And last week, Jesus was still alive. Like, there's 4,000 plus religions in the world, and there's only one empty tomb, right? It's a reality that we need to, to live under. And so, I love this, this reality of, of love being an aspect of new, lo- uh, new life, and what I think is really important for us is that it's not just about us receiving love, it's also about us giving love away. Amen? Let's stand up together. So, I'm going to pray in a moment here, and we're going to sing a, a last song, but I, I just want to wrap up with a couple things. Um, so, Michael and I, this guy, this atheist dude, we have all these talks, and like, you know, at that time, um, I was like, man, I'm so ready for this conversation. Like, I'm like, man, I've, I have like uh, three advanced theology degrees, I'm going to crush him. Because that's how you're supposed to think, right? No, obviously. But I was like, dude, I'm so going to debate this dude into the kingdom of God. Which, by the way, I've never debated anybody into the kingdom of God. But I was like ready to argue. And, and I remember we were talking and, I, and I, he like have an objection about the resurrection. And I'd tell, tell him, you know, like, well, I, I, you have to talk about this. And so I, that night, I remember like it got done and, and I was like bummed because he was like not at all interested. He had opened up to tell me that he was curious about whether the resurrection was true and if God loved him. He had, he had opened up the door a bit, right? But it didn't, it didn't like, we didn't have this like moment where he was like, I'd like to pray the sinner's prayer right now, <laughs> right? And so what we do, we start hanging out. And over the course of time, we, we just had these conversations. And it, I don't know how many months it was, but it was like one Sunday I'm at church and, you know, we're just going about it. And he walks in and, you know, we start talking and he shared about how over the course of time, he had finally come to the place of, of like wanting to know Jesus. Because he, 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 in his words later, he's like, I no longer could deny that Jesus was a real person and that there was strong evidence to support the empty tomb, the resurrection. But then he also said this, and I also had this, this interesting phenomenon where I started to, like, even though I didn't really believe in God, I started to feel like God loved me. And I was like, yeah, that's the gospel. <laughs> like, that's the whole point, isn't it? It's the whole point. And it was just a really, really beautiful story. But here's the thing for you. I'm going to have you close your eyes if you would. Just, I want you to be able to just really hear these words. Because I was thinking about more application here. And... I had this sense that, you know, when we read John 20, there's a phrase there that we, we read over that you may have totally missed. And it starts out with these words. John writes, 
in John 20, he says, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark. While it was still dark, Mary goes to the tomb and discovers that it's empty. While it was still dark. And here's the reality is that some of us in this room might be going through a part of our life that feels super dark. Like you might be going through some relationship challenges. You might have some some economic or financial situations you find yourself in and you feel like you are up to your neck. The waters have, have, have come up so high and you just don't know how you're going to make it. Maybe you, know, you are, are going through a specific situation with your spouse or with your kids or with your parents and you feel like it's, it's nighttime. It is dark. It is dark. Here's the truth. Is that even though it was dark, that tomb was still empty. And even though you and I might be going through some unbelievably challenging situations in life, even though those things are true, Jesus is still alive. And he's still seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is still sovereign over all things. So no matter what situation you are in right now, Jesus is still Lord of all. And that is hope for us this morning because when you come to him and you say, God, I need your grace. God, I need your help. God, I need your your mercy. I need your truth. I need your love. I need your help. When you do those things, you aren't saying those words to a person who is in a grave. You are saying those words to someone who truly is alive. And that is why we can look at today and say, oh, it is a glorious day. It is a glorious day. Jesus was crucified for our sins, but on the third day, By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised from that grave. And that same Spirit which raised Christ from the dead now resides in all of his disciples. And that is a good reason to experience grace. Amen? Amen. Let's sing this last song and we'll close with that.